we haven't seen this level of rain in the low country in a thousand years. Not exactly. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On iTunes, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure that we call the Bradcast. Uh, A lot coming up on today's program, including uh, follow-ups on this this mess in Alabama where they have shut down all of the uh, driver's license bureaus in uh, every single county that is 75% black or more in the state of Alabama. And that's, of course, a problem. Because uh, just last year, they enforced, they started enforcing a photo ID voting restriction, a new one, a new photo ID voting restriction, um, building on the older one. But this newer one has an even smaller handful of, of IDs that you can use if you would like to exercise your right to vote in the state of Alabama. One of them is, of course, the driver's license, the one that most people use. But now, if you're unlucky enough to live in the uh, Alabama's black belt, so-called black belt, uh, where the uh, majority is African-American, you're going to have a really hard time getting one of those IDs. So we've got some more uh, follow-up on that. We talked about it a little bit last week. We've also got... uh, A follow-up on this New Mexico Secretary of State who is facing scores, scores of fraud charges, uh, basically. A new charge has now been added to, uh, she was currently facing 64 counts. She will now be facing 65. We will explain why. Also, some more on that horrible uh, shooting in Oregon last week. Um, we've got some new details, which are uh, just make the entire mess even more puzzling and troubling and disturbing than it already is. But the good news is that if you watch Fox News, you don't have to worry. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing you can do about it. All we need to do is get more guns into college campuses. That will solve the problem. So all of that and much more ahead on today's broadcast. But first, uh, last Friday, uh, as we were uh, finishing up the week, it looked like uh, Hurricane Joaquin was going to be barreling into the East Coast. 
the good news is it ended up uh, veering to the northeast, and uh, the worst of the uh, worst of the storm did not hit the east coast. We avoided that. However, the threat of catastrophic flooding continues across South Carolina, even as Hurricane Joaquin heads further out to sea. It is still feeding a fire hose of moisture to the U.S. coast, creating one of the worst flooding events in U.S. history. Officials say at least nine people have now died in weather-related events, including five who drowned attempting to drive through floodwaters. More rain is still expected, with the National Weather Service warning of catastrophic flooding. Overnight Monday in some areas of South Carolina, areas which have already received 18 to 20 inches of rain, which is the equivalent of four months of rain in two days. As meteorologist Eric Holthouse notes over at Slate, much of South Carolina remains at a standstill at this point as one of the worst flooding events in U.S. history continues to unfold. Truly stupendous amounts of rain have fallen, Holthouse says, and state officials estimate that more than half of South Carolina is currently underwater and... It is not over yet. The water level in major rivers will continue to rise for most of the week as runoff from tributaries upstream slowly makes its way to the Atlantic. The flooding uh, was worsened by several dam breaches across the state. At one dam uh, near Greenville in the western part of the state, water was flowing through the spillway at more than a thousand times the normal rate. And as if the flooding wasn't enough, a National Weather Service statement late on Sunday warned residents, quote, be alert to wildlife that may have been displaced by floodwaters, including alligators and snakes. And that's not all. Photographs were released over the weekend showing caskets floating by as graveyards have now been dislodged by the floods. AP reports that police in Columbia, the state capital, planned fresh door-to-door checks on Monday, marking a fluorescent orange X on houses as they go, hearkening back to the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans 10 years ago. The U.S. Coast Guard is now reportedly conducting water rescues on land. They've called in the U.S. Coast Guard to rescue people on land. The true amount of rainfall in this historic event, however, will likely never be known because of the rain and flood gauges were washed away in the storm. For example, the Congaree uh, River through downtown Columbia, South Carolina, hit four times its historic maximum, four times its historic maximum flood stage uh, before the flood gauge itself was washed away. And remember, all of these record impacts hit, even though Hurricane Joaquin didn't even come close to landfall in the U.S. Uh, here was uh, here was uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley over the weekend talking about uh, these, this record flooding. We are at a thousand-year level um, of rain in parts of the low country. What does that mean? We haven't seen this level of rain in the low country in a thousand years. That's how big this is. That's how um, South Carolina is, what South Carolina is dealing with. A thousand year flood. Is that all it is? Just a, just another flood that occurs every thousand years? Or is there a climate connection 
to this record historic storm, the latest in a stream of storms that have broken records across the U.S. and the world in recent years. Here to talk about all of this is our friend, Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth, Science, Earth System Science Center at the Pennsylvania State University. He is also the author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications, as well as the book The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, and the recently updated Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change. Uh, so he is, if you believe in those things, a scientist. Let's get his thoughts on this. Michael Manser, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks, Brad. Always good to be with you. Always great to have you. So is Nikki Haley right? Is this simply a weather event that, you know, they happen, weather happens, uh, in this case, every thousand years or so, and ho-hum? There's nothing we can do but ride it out as best we can. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure how to take her comments. Um, the, 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 you know, it, it is true that, as she said, this is uh, technically uh, what we call a thousand-year event. Um, but there's a, a whole lot that uh, sort of lies under that. And it's worth uh, unpacking what you know, meteorologists mean when they say this was a thousand-year event. It yeah. doesn't literally mean that this recurs every thousand years, like it's some kind of periodic natural pattern, what they mean is based on sort of the statistics of how big an event this was. Uh, we don't have records, by the way, going back a thousand years. And so the, the governor w was, um, w was wrong in saying, you know, this was necessarily the worst flooding event in a thousand years. Yeah, she said we hadn't what, seen this in a thousand in years. In a thousand years, yeah. yeah. And we, we don't know that. We don't have observations, you know, when it comes to sort of you know, rainfall events at these scales to be able to, you know, go back that far mm -hmm. uh, with accurate um, estimates. But what we can say, it, based on the, you know, roughly century of data that we do have, is that if you just look at the probabilities based on the observed rainfall in the historical record, <clears throat> and you use, you know, the concept of what's sometimes called the standard deviation, um, and, and you look at how many of those standard deviations this event was out, you can, uh, you can sort of back out uh, mm -hmm. an estimate of how unlikely it was. And when you do that, you come up with a number like one in a thousand years. And, and that's what we mean when we say this was a thousand-year event, that just based on the statistics we have over the last century, if you back out the likelihood that we would see anything this large, such a huge record, um, it, it works out to be about one in a thousand. Now, here's another sort of important thing to understand when you hear numbers like that. That is based on the assumption that climate isn't changing. When you hear a statistic like that, yeah. it's a thousand-year event. That's based on the assumption that what's happening right now is no different from the sorts of things that were happening in the distant past. Right. That climate isn't changing, and it is. <laughs> and so... You know, we have prima facie evidence that this isn't a thousand-year event because it's happening now, and events like this are becoming a lot more common. And what that's telling us is that climate change is very detectably increasing the likelihoods of precisely these sorts of events, so that things that we used to call a thousand-year event become a hundred-year event. And pretty soon, if we continue on the course that we're on, uh, what now is a hundred-year uh, event becomes a three- or four-year event, mm. and you start to see things, things that we would have called records in the past become commonplace. And, and yeah, because I have heard this now more and more. We, we hear these now constantly. Oh, it's a 500-year flood. It's a 1,000-year drought out here in California. Right. And I always think, oh, okay, well, then it occurred 500 years ago, 1,000 <laughs> years ago. Nothing has changed since then. 
But that's not exactly right, is it? Um, no. Now, Hurricane Joaquin did not even hit the east coast of the U.S. It veered off in, into the uh, uh, northeast. How horrific would this have been but for the luck of the winds that, uh, you know, had this uh, struck the east coast? Is this like something we would have never seen before? Is this a superstorm as we've come to describe these things? Yeah, well, there were a whole bunch of very unusual things that came together, and exactly what combination of them we can, you know, attribute to climate change, that'll be debated for, you know, months, if not years. But here's what we do know. What we do know is that that hurricane uh, formed and, and ra- rapidly intensified. It intensified very rapidly into uh, nearly a Cat 5 storm mm-hmm. um, over sea surface temperatures in the western tropical Atlantic off the southeast U.S. coast that were at record levels, the warmest sea surface temperatures we have ever seen in those regions. And that meant that there were record levels of heat that were available to intensify the storm. It's that ocean heat that uh, produces the energy that leads to uh, intense hurricanes. And What's also true is that the warmer the ocean surface, and there's a simple physical relationship, one of the simplest relationships in meteorology, um, as you increase the, the surface temperatures of the ocean, the amount of moisture that is available to evaporate from the ocean into the atmosphere increases exponentially. So there was not only record ocean heat, but there was record levels of moisture in the air. And if you look at the satellite images right now, uh, what you can see is that even though that hurricane is pretty far off the east coast of the U.S., um, you can see that moisture streaming in to the west. And it is joining the moisture from a sort of stalled uh, frontal system. Uh, it's, it's sort of a perfect storm of its own. It's, uh, it's literally two different meteorological events that have merged to produce record levels of moisture. But part of the story, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, part of the story was record heat in the Atlantic, which meant that there was record moisture off the coast, and it's that record levels of moisture in the atmosphere that are streaming in to give us these record levels of uh, rainfall, unfortunately, um, over a large part of South Carolina and as it moves north into North Carolina. Uh, Michael Mann, uh, Slate meteorologist Eric Holthouse, who I was uh, quoting a bit from earlier, said that uh, he noted that major floods have also hit in China, France, and Guatemala just over the past week with more than 100 dead. He cites a quickening of the hydrological cycle. Uh, and he asked how many such incidents we'll see before we start bending the global emissions curve away from a worst-case climate scenario. Is that, is, is the hyd- what is the hydrological cycle, and what is its quickening? Yeah, no, he's exactly right. You know, the hydrological cycle, that's just a, a technical term for the way water circulates in our global uh, environment. Uh, water uh, evaporates from the ocean surface and it becomes moisture in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. but some of that moisture ends up... Um, getting drawn into storms and condensed and turned into precipitation and snowfall, which falls out of the atmosphere and is returned in lakes and rivers and the oceans. And this is constantly going on. But the sort of the, the, the rate limiting step in that cycle, in, in a sense, is the rate of evaporation from the ocean in the first place. That's what sort of sets the rate for how rapidly 
this uh-huh. cycle occurs. And what we know, again, this is some of the simplest physics um, in meteorology. The, when you increase those ocean surface temperatures, and we've seen the warmest oceans on record right now, so far this year, first eight months of this year, the oceans are the warmest on record. And that means that we're seeing the largest rate of evaporation from the ocean surface into the atmosphere on record. And it means we're seeing the most intense global hydrological cycle on record. And that is something that's measurable, right? We don't have to guess. We don't have to presume. We can actually measure the amount of moisture in the atmosphere? We can. Um, we can measure that with satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certain channels and satellites are very effective in telling us how much moisture there is in the atmosphere. We can also uh, measure um, through a variety of platforms um, the circulation of that moisture, okay. it, the, the rainfall and snow that falls. Uh-huh. Uh, we have some handle on the rate of evaporation. And so we can actually, that's you know, why we have um, weather satellites and other observations to try to do all that accounting so we can figure out what's going on. And in your scientific estimation, if nothing is done to, uh, to bend the emissions curve, uh, do you foresee much, much more of this and a worsening of this, in fact? Yeah. Well, there's no question. I mean, what we're seeing play out is precisely what we warned, you know, would play out decades ago. We said, look, some of the simplest physics here is that as we warm the planet, we are going to indeed, as Eric said, increase the sort of the, the rapidity of this hydrological cycle. We're going to see it, some regions will actually get drier, but on average, when we do see precipitation, when we do see rainfalls, when we do see snowfalls like we saw in Boston, they will occur in larger amounts. We'll oh. see more of those very heavy rainfalls and those heavy snowfalls. You're right. I, Earth warms. I had completely actually forgotten already last winter the amazing right. amount of snow in, that that uh, happened in Boston and elsewhere. Uh, 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 Mike, I know you've uh, I know you're on a number of deadlines and trying to get out of town. So we've got just a few more minutes with you. Let me try to run through three quick questions that I want to see if I can sure. get to you. Uh, in fact, the the number of hurricanes that have made landfall uh, on the on the East Coast has uh, rather drastically fallen over the last several years. Deniers like to use Atlantic hurricane statistics to claim there's no global warming influence. Uh, what, what's wrong with that statement as you see it? Yeah, well, I mean, what we have to look at, are, we can't just look at the statistics of that, that very small number of hurricanes that actually make landfall from year to year. Um, there are only typically, you know, one or two or maybe three landfalling hurricanes uh, a year on the U.S. East Coast and, and Gulf Coast. And so you're talking about the statistics of small numbers. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tend to want to step back um, and look at, well, let's look at the larger number of uh, storms that, are actual, that actually form. And a certain fraction of, them, fraction of them statistically will make landfall. And that number is going to fluctuate a lot from year to year. Mm-hmm. But how many storms are forming, and in particular... What about the most intense storms? Because those are the storms that by far do the vast majority of damage, both the wind damage and the flooding damage. Yeah. The worst damage is done by the strongest storms. And so we tend to, you know, when we're looking at the impacts of climate change on you know, hurricane damages, um, we tend to look at what's happening to the strongest storms. Now, my co-authors and I actually had an article that came out a week ago in the journal uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where we showed that um, uh, climate change uh, has actually taken events like Sandy, that would have been a 3,000-year event, uh, a, flood, uh, a um, storm surge like Sandy, 14 feet at uh, 
at, at Battery Park in New York City, something like that would have been a one in 3,000 year event um, prior to global warming. And it's now more like a one in 100 year event. And that increase is due to a combination of things. Sea level is rising. That means you have more coastal floods, all other things being equal. And the storms are tending to get larger and stronger in our simulations. And it's that combination, bigger storms and stronger storms, that are going to build up the largest storm surges like we've seen in recent years. And, and we saw uh, more storms and stronger storms, I believe, in the Pacific this year as well, which is uh, often not talked about in the U.S. media. We had one storm after another. Uh, That's right. Uh, and that, that yeah. ties into El, El Nino. Uh, yeah. During El Nino years, tends to be a little less active in the Atlantic and a little more active in the Pacific. Okay, that was, one, that. That was yep. one of my last two questions here for you, Michael Mann. Uh, El Nino. Uh, we have been yeah. promised El Nino out here in California where we are bone dry. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no irony that we are hoping for one natural disaster in order to save us from another natural disaster. But uh, ironic, is, yes. is uh, ironic and dis- uh, disturbing. Uh, is this El Nino going to happen? Are we going to see some rains finally here in, in California? It's been predicted for a couple of years. Is, is it finally coming? Yeah, so the El Nino is definitely happening. I mean, every you know, measurement tells us mm-hmm. we are now in the midst of an historically strong El Nino event. That, by the way, is part of the reason that 2015 is going to be so warm. It would have likely been... Uh, record level warmth, it's going to be even more of a record breaker because of this big El Nino that is already strengthening and it's already adding to the the, the warmth of ocean temperatures around the world. And typically in a strong El Nino, if you look at the best, you know, what we think is the best analog uh, for this particular El Nino event is the 97-98 El Nino. And that was a soaker Mm -hmm. for the West Coast. Um, And so we're sort of hoping, uh, obviously for many reasons, that that translates to this El Nino also sort of returning those rains to, to, to uh, California this winter. But I'll ha- I have to, you know, uh, level with you. Um, you know, there is a lot of variability. When you look at one El Nino event to the next, um, they don't always end up being associated with precisely the same change in the pattern of the jet stream. So here we're saying... This looks sort of like the 97-98 event, so we're hoping that it does sort of the same thing to the jet stream that happened in that event, which, you know, the, uh, the Pineapple Express and all that rainfall coming to California. Mm-hmm. But there is the possibility, um, and we need to be aware of that, that we might not get all of that rainfall this winter. And obviously we're in the midst of a historic, devastating drought in California already. If we don't get the sort of relief that we're hoping this El Nino might bring, well, then, you know, we have to really start contending with um, the fact that we're in a new normal here, a new normal where, you know, even an El Nino event isn't going to be enough to replenish the reservoirs and provide the water resources that are needed. And, and is that tied to the fact that really, the well, just weather patterns have changed? We've had this massive uh, uh, ridge of high pressure off the coast of California for so long. Is it possible that just the jet streams uh, and the weather patterns have simply changed uh, due to global warming at this point? Absolutely. And there's a very uh, interesting debate right now within the climate research community about precisely that connection. Can we connect this very unusual pattern of the jet stream we've seen in recent years, which has deprived California of rainfall? Can we connect that to climate change? There's some scientists 
who have argued there is a connection. Um, there's a connection with the decrease in Arctic sea ice, which changes the pattern potentially of the jet stream and potentially puts it into this sort of configuration um, that we've seen in recent uh, winters. On the other hand, there's some scientists who are not convinced of that connection. But even forgetting about the connection there, uh, with the, 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 the pattern of the jet stream and the rainfall associated with it. Just the fact that the last year was the warmest year on record for California, and we can't explain that without human-caused climate change and global warming. That extra warmth that we're seeing and we're going to continue to see in California and elsewhere means that you get more evaporation of whatever moisture you do have. So whether or not you see a decrease in rainfall, you're going to lose more moisture from the ground. You're going to have less uh, snowpack um, and therefore less runoff in the spring and summer months. Um, even, even if, those jet stream if that jet stream pattern doesn't change, global warming, because of this increase in evaporation from soils, is going to make drought worse regardless. Mm. Disturbing, uh, disturbing thought. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, before I let you go, we had uh, last question here. We had uh, Inside Climate News' uh, Neela Banerjee on the show last week uh, yeah. talking about their blockbuster investigative series on Exxon having known as long ago as the 1970s about the potential catastrophic uh, dangers. Uh, caused by global warming and uh, thanks to, and, and, and you know acknowledging that it was the continuing use of their product uh, and and uh, then the massive about face they took by abandoning much of their own climate science and covertly investing millions into the global warming denialist industry. I wanted to get your sh thoughts. I'm sure you have followed that uh, blockbuster series over at Inside sure. Climate News. Uh, before I let you go, any thoughts on on that series and and where this thing goes? Sure thing. In fact, I think I was actually quoted in, in their, uh, the first article that they yeah. put out in this series. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was quoted saying that, you know, how sad, you know, how tragic that ExxonMobil, their scientists were telling them that we have a problem. They could have positioned themselves to be leaders. They could have said, look, you know, we can't continue to do this. They could have decided to take a leadership role in this necessary transition to renewable energy. And instead, they obfuscated, they funded um, think tanks, and they paid advocates to, to try to, you know, confuse the public, just like the tobacco industry did about their products. And what's happened to us, we've fallen behind. The rest of the world now uh, has embraced renewable energy, green energy, as the energy revolution, uh, you know, uh, of this century. And they're moving forward on it, and we're falling behind in our international competitiveness when we could have seized the initiative decades ago. We could have been leaders, and instead we've now become followers, and we owe that to this very unfortunate um, disinformation campaign that has been undertaken by fossil fuel interests uh, rather than, you know, the, the campaign to, to help move us forward, which is what they could have been doing. They could have been. They could have been leaders, as you say. Instead, uh, Michael Mann, you have been a leader and, uh, pardon the pun, uh, taken no small <laughs> amount of heat for it uh, from uh, those uh, those folks who have been funded by uh, Exxon and ExxonMobil and so forth. Uh, I know you got to run, so I thank you for your time. Michael Mann, Distinguished well, Professor and Director of Earth System Science Center, at, uh, at the Pennsylvania State University, and check out his book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. He has been in the center of this from day one uh, as he has been leading the way to explain to the world what the hell is going on. Thanks, Mike. Greatly appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, Brad. All right.
Of course, uh, the problem is not only in South Carolina. I should note uh, John Morales, uh, chief meteorologist for NBC6 in South Florida, writes that we started last week with many areas around Miami and Fort Lauderdale seeing some of the worst saltwater flooding in years. Seawater came up through the drains and spilled over sidewalks even without a drop of rain. In Miami Beach, where dozens of pumps are being installed at a cost of almost a half billion dollars, he adds, can you say carbon tax? Several main road arteries required twice daily closures as they became impassable during high tide. Salt water flooding during king tide in Miami Beach is nothing new, he says, but it's becoming deeper and more widespread as land subs- as land subsides. And sea level rises due to thermal expansion of the ocean and ice melt caused by global warming. Later this month, he adds, we'll do it all over again as tides are predicted to be about as high as they were this week. So even now, Desi Toyin, uh, in in Florida, in Miami Beach, it's going away. The sea is uh, encroaching on the land. This was without the rain. This was just from the sea level rise from this hurricane that was way, 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 way off coast. Yeah, that's what's so remarkable about this entire storm system is how it didn't even touch U.S. landfall. And it was just the, mo- the, the plume of the storm. And as you said, the, the, as Michael Mann said, the, the fire hose of moisture that was directed at South Carolina. And this is what we can expect. And it's obvious that our infrastructure, whether it's Florida, whether it's South Carolina, whether it's anywhere in the world, is prepared for these level, this level of, a, of intense event to happen, not just you know more intensely, but more often. We are paying so much money. It's going to cost them so much money. And of course, they're turning to the federal government that they hate, you know, in South Carolina. Carolina. They hate the federal government unless, of course, they need the federal government. So it's going to cost us so much money, going to cost South Carolina, Florida, uh, the federal government. That's you and I and all of us so much money, uh, you know, and, and to, to just to deal with the effects of global warming that we are feeling already much, much less what is going to happen in the future. And yet, at the same time, they say, oh, we can't do anything about global warming because that will cost too much. Well, you know what? Pay now or pay later. Either way, you're going to pay. We're going to take a quick break, and we will come back with uh, the mess in Alabama and New Mexico as the uh, fight for democracy continues in both of those states and much more. An update on, uh, on the shooting last week in Oregon. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Hey, Desi Doyen, do you, do you know why I... Oh, and by the way, I didn't properly introduce uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, my uh, co-host on the Green News Report. Hi, Des. Hi. Uh, do, you, do you know why I'm playing that uh, intro song? I have no idea why. Uh, is it because I'm going to talk about Rio? Oh, maybe. Hey, is that why? No, that's not oh. why. <laughs> uh, is it because I'm going to talk about Duran Duran? Oh, are you going to talk about Duran Duran? I am not going to talk about Duran Duran, but oh. I am going to talk about New Mexico Secretary of State... Diana Duran or Diana Duran. I don't even know. I think it's Duran is how well, you say her these, name. For this purpose, it should be Duran, I That's suppose. That's right. So, okay, Duran. well, that makes sense. All yes. right. Yes, so I am going to talk about her in New, uh, New Mexico and an incredible, an incredible story about her uh, and the 65th criminal count that has now been charged against her. And by the way, she's not resigning. Anyway, I'll get to that in a moment, but I want to uh, hit this uh, Alabama story some more. Because this is really troubling. Remember, Alabama is, of course, uh, really the home of the Voting Rights Act. It was after the uh, uh, Selma, the bloody Sunday march in Selma, Alabama, that we finally got the Voting Rights Act back in 1965. And it was a lawsuit by Shelby County, Alabama, that led to the Supreme Court gutting one of the key provisions of the Voting Rights Act back in uh, back in 2013 that has now allowed Alabama to institute a photo ID voting restriction that uh, now requires uh, just a handful of, of IDs in order to be able to cast your vote. Even if you're an already legally registered voter, you're not going to be able to vote in 2016 in the state of Alabama unless you have one of a very small, a tiny handful of uh, state-approved photo IDs. The most commonly used is, of course, the driver's license. And now Alabama, as we discussed last week on the show, is shutting down driver's license offices all across the state, all across the state, but most predominantly in. Alabama's Black Belt, uh, the area that is a majority African-American. Every single county with 75 percent majority black voters will see their driver's license office shut down entirely. So, hey, good luck with that whole voting thing. Um, this cannot stand. And so uh, right now, the NAACP... Their legal defense fund, President Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, sent a letter Friday to Governor Robert Bentley, the Republican who runs the state, and Secretary of the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, Spencer Collier. They were the ones who shut down all of these bureaus, uh, supposedly due to budget restrictions, because, because the Republican government in Alabama refuses to raise revenue, refuses to increase taxes. So instead of increasing taxes to pay for the things that the citizens of Alabama need, they're just going to cut off those services. And, hey, if those services end up cutting off the uh, ability for voters to vote, certain voters, oh, well, so be it. Hey, times are tough. So this letter also went to Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, also a Republican, so uh, the NAACP uh, suggested a strong likelihood that Alabama's actions violated the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution. She said there was, quote, a potential need for immediate legal action by the state. I'm sorry, by the group against the state. She said by closing these offices, the state will drastically reduce the number of sites where potential voters can obtain photo ID, creating 
a substantial and disproportionate burden on black people's ability to participate in the political process in Alabama. So you can look forward to a lawsuit now that will cost the state of Alabama even more money to defend. Money which, remember, they don't have, so they have to close down all these driver's license bureaus. At the same time, they may be facing yet another lawsuit from the Department of Justice, at least if the one Democratic congresswoman who represents the state of Alabama, Terry Sewell, uh, has her way. She wrote a letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch uh, on Monday saying, I am writing to respectfully request a formal investigation by the Department of Justice into the recent decision by Alabama law enforcement to close 31 driver's license offices in mostly rural, low-income, and African-American communities in the state of Alabama. This decision will leave out eight, she says, will leave eight out of the ten counties with the highest percentage of non-white registered voters without a Department of Motor Vehicles to issue an Alabama driver's license. Now, remember, they had already had a requirement in Alabama that you had to show ID. And there's already a requirement in all 50 states that you have to show an ID when you register to vote. But what they did was they restricted the types of IDs that could be used. For example, your Social Security card? No good. You can't use that. Even though it's your Social Security card, got your number on it, signed and everything else, it doesn't have your photo on it, so... The state of Alabama says, nope, you can't use it. Why? Do you have a problem with voter fraud in your state, with people impersonating others when they go to vote? No. No, we have none. None whatsoever. But we might. We could. Do you care that this is going to affect, uh, disproportionately affect African-American voters? Well, actually, no, we don't give a damn. Actually, not only do we not give a damn, that's why we're doing it. That's why they passed the photo ID restriction in the first place. Congresswoman Sewell goes on to write to her letter in her letter to uh, A.G. Lynch that this fact combined with Alabama's voter ID law means that the DMV closures will disproportionately affect African-American voters in violation of their constitutionally protected right to vote. Moreover, this decision directly impacts the majority of my constituents since eight of the 14 counties that comprise my congressional district will no longer have DMV offices. Desi Doyen, I think, as you described it last week, you said, oh, that's a feature, not a bug. Right. I believe it is. And and I did also, did I read this correctly, that the ID from your four-year college will count, but an ID from a technical or vocational college mm. will not count. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is a huge I, yeah. class <laughs> disparity right. right there. Of course, of course. Uh, actually, you know what? That might be up in Wisconsin because that's what they're doing up in Wisconsin. The same thing. They've got the same bill. It's been found unconstitutional time and time again, yet they're continuing to try it up there. And I believe that 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 data point you mentioned, Desi, I think comes from a, a lawsuit that's moving forward right now in Wisconsin, trying to undo that similarly uh, disproportionately uh racial law yeah and multiple fronts that yeah. this is happening on of multiple course, states of all course because it's easier than trying to win elections based on your policies sewell goes on to say that since the enactment of alabama's voter voter id law an estimated two hundred and fifty thousand alabamians do not have an acceptable form of photo id to cast a ballot and the DMV closures further exasperate this tenuous situation. She says to restrict the ability of any citizen to vote is an assault on the rights 
of all Americans to equally participate in the electoral process. Of course, I agree, but those people who pretend to give a damn about rights, those folks on the right who will uh, go to burning hell in order to save the, uh, the right to own any single weapon, any amount of uh, arms that you like because, oh, it's a right, uh, they don't give a damn about this right. The right to vote, only the most important right, the right that protects all other rights. So we will be keeping our eye on that case as it moves forward in Alabama. And as the state of Alabama is forced to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. In order to defend the closure of these DMVs that they claim they had to do because they don't have millions of dollars because they won't raise taxes. Because they're Republicans and paying for stuff that they actually need, that the citizens want. Paying for the government of the people, by the people and for the people. That's just too much. We just might as well take away rights instead. That's exactly what they are doing in Alabama. Again. All right, so that's the uh, that's the front end. If you're going to try to vote in 2016, uh, the front end is good luck getting in the door in state to state. And then there's the back end that we talk about so often on this program that almost no one ever does, which is the counting of votes and the ability to oversee your own elections. And to uh, do that for the citizens to be able to oversee their own elections, look, there are a lot of good election officials out there. Uh, we, we've, we talk about him over the years. Uh, one of them, Leon County, Florida, Ion Sancho, he had said a few years ago, quote, trust no one. If it can't be verified, it can't be used. He was talking, that was Leon County, Florida, supervisor of elections, Ion Sancho, one of the nation's best. He was talking about voting systems, voting computers, and that if it can't be verified by the public, then it cannot be used. Yolo County, California registrar clerk, that's Yolo County, uh, yeah, out here in California, uh, Freddie Oakley. And I'm not sure if she's still there or not, but also one of the great election officials in this country. She wrote a couple of years ago in response to colleagues uh, that were concerned about the fact that voting machines were being sent home overnight with poll workers. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, 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 which time they can be hacked, they can be manipulated in all kinds of ways. But, hey, they're giving to poll workers. We should trust the poll workers. Just trust them. Uh, Freddie Oakley had said that, uh, it, we, as we wrote at bradblog.com at the time, that uh, her colleagues, uh, they also argue, quote, we have to trust our poll workers. To this, I can only say, only if they are incorruptible. And, of course, they are not incorruptible. And that's an election official saying that. So this is not about attacking election officials. This is about uh, the fact that election official, officials, yes, are corruptible. And uh, about the fact that even if they aren't corruptible, the people need to know whether they are corruptible or not and whether these voting machines, which are definitely corruptible, whether they are reporting the accurate results. It is not enough to say, hey, the, uh, the Secretary of State says so. The county uh, registrar, the county clerk says these are the results. This is a grave threat to our democracy when the people don't know if they can trust the results as they come out. And if they can't oversee them themselves, then they can't be trusted. Our system is not built on trust. It's built on checks and balances. 
And I've played this, uh, this, this short piece of uh, tape in the past, but let's play it again before we get to what is going on in New Mexico. This was me back in uh, 2005. I was on the Peter B. Collins radio show, my good friend Peter B. Collins. He was interviewing Monterey County, California's then registrar of voting, Tony Anchundo, who had been the registrar, much beloved in the community for about 13 years. And I asked Tony Anchundo, who was getting new electronic voting systems at the time, I said, well, what happens if the uh, so-called paper tapes that print out give a different result than the uh, than the internal numbers on that voting machine? Which one are you going to trust, the, the printed out numbers or the internal numbers from the computer? And here was uh, Tony Anchundo, I think he was 13-year registrar of voters at the time, Monterey County, California. Here's how he responded to my question. How will the voter know? They won't know, obviously, at that time. There is obviously going to have to be some trust and faith in the elections official, and in this case, it's me. So you just have trust and faith in the election officials, says Tony Anchundo. Funny thing, that com- uh, that uh, question I had asked him on air was October 2005. By July of 2006, Tony Anchundo had been indicted on 43 criminal counts of forgery, misapplication of funds, embezzlement, falsification of accounts, and grand theft. By December 2006... This election official, who I was supposed to have faith and trust in, he pled no contest. He would eventually go on to serve nine months in jail, part of a uh, suspended five-year sentence for the embezzlement of more than $80,000 of taxpayer money. And now we move to New Mexico. New Mexico, which elected their first Republican Secretary of State back in 2010, their first Republican Secretary of State since 1928. She unseated Diana Duran, unseated um, the uh, the Democratic uh, secretary of state there. And she immediately came in and started talking about voter fraud, that we have to do something about voter fraud. Uh, And she talked about uh, there was a culture of corruption. That's a quote, culture of corruption in the state. That Diana Duran had bemoaned uh, the the signups, the registration, voter registrations at um, DMVs under her tenure went just plummeted once she became secretary of state, despite the National Voter Registration Act that requires uh, driver's license offices to offer the ability to register to vote. But suddenly when she came in, when this Republican secretary of state came into office, those two plummeted and she didn't give a damn about it. And somehow in 2014, she was reelected anyway. Uh, according to the L.A. Times today, the New Mexico secretary of state who oversees campaign finance reporting and once bemoaned a culture of corruption in the state has been accused of using her election fund as a personal piggy bank at jewelry stores, ATMs and casinos. Secretary of State Diana Duran already faces allegations of financial crimes stemming from a separate August indictment that we told you about a few weeks ago. 64 counts, 64 charges related to fraud, embezzlement, and money laundering. The Attorney General's office alleged that uh, Diana Duran frequented casinos across the state, withdrawing almost half a million dollars between 2013 and 2014 from her personal accounts, while also depositing campaign funds into her personal accounts. So she was taking campaign money 
moving it into her personal account, and then withdrawing it at casinos to the tune of about half a million dollars. Late on Friday, the New Mexico Attorney General's office alleged in a criminal complaint that Duran also falsified campaign finance reports by forging the name of a former state Senate colleague and claiming him as her campaign treasurer. The one-time colleague, Don Kidd, a banker in southeast New Mexico, denies any involvement with Duran's campaign in 2010 and 2014. So now a 65th charge, identity theft, was added on Friday to her uh, to uh, Diana, Secretary of State Diana Duran's rap sheet after a kid was interviewed with an investigator uh, who said, yeah, I, uh, I knew nothing about this. I had nothing to do with her campaign. He was absolutely amazed that he was listed as the treasurer on her campaigns in both 2010 and 2014. By the way, uh, Diana Duran is refusing to step aside despite now 65 counts against her. As Santa Fe, New Mexico uh, uh, po- political columnist Milan Simonich wrote, uh, she wants to hang on to her $85,000 a year job as Secretary of State as long as possible. Her record of bank overdrafts probably explains why. And I hope that this story helps you to understand, explains why, once again, we do not trust elections officials, even the very best ones, even the very best ones. And by the way, you can tell the very best ones because they will tell you to not trust them. Sixty five counts now against the New uh, New Mexico Secretary of State, Republican Diana K. Duran or Duran. She is still serving as Secretary of State of New Mexico as we head into a presidential election year. And yes, uh, when it comes time for elections, you're just supposed to trust the election officials who say, yeah, yeah, I certified it. No fraud here. Nothing, uh, nothing untoward. Trust me. Why worry? I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Friedman from bradblog.com in our closing few minutes. One of the points I wasn't able to get to last week as we were discussing the the horrible uh, shooting up in Oregon at Umpqua Community College uh, was this nonsense that was uh, spreading around that, oh, it was a gun-free zone. It was a gun-free zone, and that's why these shooters, they only shoot at gun-free zones because they know they're not going to get shot at. Turns out that's nonsense. Uh, In fact, uh, it wasn't a gun-free zone. State law, Oregon is one of seven states that allows concealed carry on post-secondary campuses. Um, So, and in fact, there was someone on uh, who was hiding, who had a gun. John Parker Jr. was interviewed uh, on MSNBC last week. John Parker is a veteran and a student at UCC. He was in a campus building with a concealed handgun when the shooting started. 
He suggested other students with him at the time were also carrying concealed handguns. Um, but uh, it, the interview revealed the practical difficulties of armed civilians trying to stop a mass shooting. By the time he became aware of the shooting, a SWAT team had already responded, and then he was concerned that the police would view him as a bad guy and target him. So he quickly retreated into the classroom. Because he had this gun on him, he could have been shot inappropriately. Uh, in uh, Mother Jones reported that uh, a study of 62 mass shootings over 30 years uh, found that not a single case included evidence that the killer chose to target a place because it banned guns. Many of the mass shootings took place in areas that where uh, guns were permitted, but not a single one was stopped by armed civilians. We reported after the uh, Sandy Hook massacre uh, in 2012, we reported that back in 2009, ABC News did a study. You can go over to Bradblog and, and, and do a search for uh, ABC News uh, shootings. I think that'll probably uh, find it for you. I'll try to link to it at bradblog.com. Back to the old story from 2012. But this was a study. We ran the video at, uh, at Bradblog from 2009 showing what happened when you had trained marksmen uh, in a room where suddenly it was actually a classroom and a, a gunman comes in and what happens when the gunman comes in and they feel they need to suddenly defend themselves against this gunman. They were shooting each other. They were shooting themselves. This thing likely would have been worse, not better, had there been uh, you know, more guns on that campus. But it was not a gun-free zone. No matter what you hear over and over and over on Fox News, here was Donald Trump on Fox, you know, re re repeating this same nonsense over the weekend. That was a gun-free zone in Oregon where they had no guns allowed, no nothing. So the only one that had the gun was the bad guy and everybody was sitting there. And wouldn't they have been better off if somebody in the room, anybody, you know, anybody had a gun to at least... Help them out. These gun-free zones are a disaster because everybody's just a sitting duck. And, of course, the evidence for that is that uh, Donald Trump watches Fox and they tell him on, on uh, Fox that gun-free zones are a disaster. And they even tell him that this uh, school was a, a gun-free zone when we have evidence that it absolutely was not. Tucker Carlson on that same show. Uh, man, this guy is stupid. Here's what uh, uh, Tucker Carlson had to say. You can mock Trump, but this is a rational point. When there's a drunk driving accident, you don't ban cars. You try to prevent drunk people from driving them. The oh. idea that taking guns away from the law-abiding will make us safer is insane and childish. Okay, nobody is trying to take away guns from the law-abiding. Law that is insane and childish, Tucker Carlson. Furthermore, yes, when as a drunk driver, you don't ban cars. You try to keep that. Uh, you try to keep drunks from being able to drive, much as we're trying to keep people who would misuse guns from being able to get guns in the first place. Uh, the father of the shooter was interviewed. Ian Mercer is the name. The father uh, was interviewed. I, I think this was on uh, uh, CNN, and he was uh, he was asked to comment on the fact that his son, Chris Harper Mercer, had some 13 guns, I think six at the, uh, uh, at the shooting site and seven back at home. Here's what his father had to say. How on earth could he compile 13 guns? How can that happen? You know, 
They talk about gun laws. They talk about um, gun control. Every time something like this happens, they talk about it and nothing is done. I'm not trying to say that that's to blame for what happened, but if Chris had not been able to get a hold of 13 guns, it wouldn't have happened. Well, look all over the world. You don't see these kind of mass shootings all over the world on a consistent basis like you do in the United States. So somebody has to ask the question, how is it so easy to get all these guns? How is it so easy? Oh, stop asking that childish question, Ian Mercer. That's what Tucker Carlson would say. Yeah, it's easy for a 26-year-old kid to get 13. Actually, I think it was 14. I think they found another weapon. So how did they get it? The father didn't know about it, but the mother did. The mother of the Oregon mass murderer stockpiled firearms because, why? She feared stricter gun laws. And she shopped around for a shooting range that would let her and her son fire away without supervision, according to the Daily News. Laurel Harper, a, uh, a nurse who shared an apartment with her son, Chris Harper Mercer, spoke openly about her love of guns, said the mother of one of her patients. She said she had multiple guns and believed wholeheartedly in the Second Amendment and wanted to get all the guns she could before someone outlawed them. And, of course, nobody is outlawing them. Shelly Steele, uh, this is the woman who was one of uh, her patients, one of the mother's patients, uh, had hired Harper to provide care for her sickly teenage son. Harper told Steele uh, that she tried a shooting range close to the college but uh, didn't like it because it wasn't very private. You needed to have a range master with you, and she didn't like having anyone watch, said Steele, who lives in Winston, Oregon. She told my husband that she just purchased some new guns a few weeks ago and took her son shooting. I thought the whole situation was very strange. If you know your son has mental health issues, do you encourage a fascination with guns? Apparently you do. Because if you don't, someone, some unknown person, oh, Barack Obama, he's going to come and take away your guns. As the NRA and their uh, terrorist-loving uh, uh, friends have been lying to you and uh, to the rest of uh, America for years as Fox News has repeated the same nonsense over and over and over again. Unbelievable. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Michael Mann of Penn State University's Earth System Science Center. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can always download it at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And if you want to follow me and stalk me on the Twitters and the Facebooks, you may do so. Over there, I am the Brad Blog. We'll be back with the same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, good luck, world. <laughs>